Welcome to the Triathlete Hour. Today, we're chatting with Paratri world champion and bronze medalist Melissa Stockwell. Melissa was the first female soldier to lose a limb during the Iraq war, though, as she jokes, that wasn't a goal she set out to achieve. She talks to us about coming back from that, being selected as the flag bearer at the closing ceremonies in the 2008 Paralympics, which she competed in as a swimmer, and then finding triathlon. And now she's going for another shot at the team this summer as a 41-year-old. Plus first, Laura Sedol is back with Sid Talks, and we dissect the wins of another pair of nearly 40-year-olds this past weekend. We try to explain the pro triathlete organization's rankings, and we preview the stacked field at St. George this weekend. All of that after this break. Make your great return to racing and take on the Big Apple this summer. The 2021 Verizon New York City Triathlon is scheduled for July 11th and lottery submissions are closing tonight, April 28th at midnight. Produced by Lifetime, the New York City Triathlon gives selected athletes a chance to compete at this iconic event, earn their moment in the spotlight and prove their prowess against the inspiring backdrop of the concrete jungle. Now is the time to dive in and submit your registration for the chance to swim, bike, and run your way to the finish line in the heart of New York City. Visit nyctry.com for all event information and to put your name in the running before the lottery closes tonight. All right, this week we're back with uh, our Laura Sedol for Sid Talk. She's back in Spain. You made the, the long drive back across the, the water. I did the train, the train under under the under the ocean under the Channel Tunnel, and then the long drive down through Spain, uh, through France into Spain. I should say. How was Paralympic training? It was yeah, it was good. It was fascinating. I'm kind of glad I listened to those podcasts that that you did before. Um, yeah, just. Oh, without opened your eyes up to a whole new world and excuse that sorry for the pun there but it was I mean they're just incredible athletes like literally Alison who was I was working with she was literally guiding me on the bike when we were doing the tandem like we were riding in and around Loughborough and then we cycled back to where she was staying and she was directing me she's like right you're going to come up to a roundabout you need to take the second exit and then you know, we'd cycle along and then it'd be like, there's some traffic lights coming up and you're going to, we're going to turn left. And I'm like, how that, you know, and she doesn't live there and things. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was just amazing. Like just the difference of like what you have to do in the swim and the communication aspects of it. And then, and the run. And I was most worried about the bike and the tandem aspect of it. But, um, we had three great rides, one sort of just, trying to get going and stopping and not getting anybody hit by cars and traffic on the roads. Um, one with some sort of efforts just to kind of get that speed and power and what that feels like. And then we did a session on like a closed, a closed track circuit, um, which is great for them practicing things like standing up and huh. doing sort of more dead turn cornering and accelerating and then, and that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was good fun. And, and I had, but I did have some good, I had good guides and teachers helping me. So you're ready for the Olympics now? For Tokyo. Uh, yeah, not <laughs> quite there yet, but yeah, we still need to do. I said, I was, I said to Alice, and I said, so um, presumably when you come off the bike at the end of the bike section and going onto the to the run, you're not doing like a flying dismount, are you? You're just gonna like you know you roll up over the line, stop, and you know unclip. And she's like, no, 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 we do a flying dismount. And I'm like. <laughs> 
oh, okay, right. Okay, no, I need another lesson now. <laughs> I actually was even like, oh man, I think I need to practice my dismounts for racing. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and, and to be fair, like, yeah, looking at some of the dismounts and mounts in uh, Miami and Daytona, probably all the pros. The other thing that was funny, we were doing some swimming and sort of practicing being tethered, but we're doing like flip turns well, when we were untethered, we were doing flip turns, but I have to then, it's like a hypoxic workout for me because my <laughs> flip turns are rubbish anyway. So you'd have to flip turn and then you have to go quite deep to go underneath Alison to switch sides. So then you swim Ow. back down. And then we were tethered and we were going to start doing flip turns. I was like, no, 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 no. I cannot get my head around what we need to do with a flip turn when we're tethered by the legs and we will end up on the bottom of the pool with like the tether round our necks or something and I'll have like drowned us both. Uh, but some people do that. And I was like, thankfully we don't have to do flip turns in a triathlon open water swim. So we don't need to practice them with a tether on now. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that sounds very complicated. Yeah. Very, very difficult. Yeah. So uh, the other thing, obviously, that you've been talking about for a little while was uh, the first races kind of in Europe happened again. We had Challenge Grand Canaria last weekend. And uh, and I know you've been saying that was like a big race. All the Euro- It was the first one for Europeans. All the Europeans were going to be there. And we had a pair of 39-year-olds win, Jan Ferdino and Nicholas Spearing. And I think the joke was between them, they have five kids, three medals, and they're both going to be 40 this year, right? I know, it's awesome. Like, go the, I don't even know what we call it. You can't even say, like, mature athlete, older athlete, because they're killing it and they're kicking ass. And that, I think, is the way the sport's going. I mean, yeah, that both, what is it, Nicola's going for her fifth Olympics this year, Um, three kids, two Olympic medals. um, Absolutely. And, I mean, you know, Nicola raced in, where is it, Daytona, wasn't it? But I don't think that bike course particularly suited where she was at with her. Yeah, like, we know she's strong on the bike, but it wasn't, the, the pure time trialing wasn't kind of probably where she's been training. But the course in Gran Canaria, it was four laps. So four laps over 90K. It was hilly. It was twisty. It was pretty technical. I mean, that's just suited suited her to the ground where she's at training training for the short distance and we know she can do the long and she's got the endurance anyway so she just crushed it i think had the fastest run split or something as well Um, yeah she wasn't it was like four minutes three minutes whatever she won by a lot it was yeah and also yeah that's it she ran away and also i think people have probably like leading up to rio um in the itu world her she wasn't known to be a swimmer and she'd had that broken hand i think and yet she surprised everyone because she came out like kind of front pack in rio and i think we saw in Gran Canary and okay it's probably slightly different but um Spanish girl Sarah Perez who was on Lucy's feet in Miami and we're like wow this amazing swimmer well Nicola was on Sarah's feet in in, um, Gran Canaria so came out at the front and kind of never really looked back um and then it was a real good battle for second and third between uh Sarissa DeVries I think it was and Lisa Norden Lisa, yeah. Yeah. And then on the men, like Jan, just another kind of masterclass. I mean, he looked pretty broken at the end as well. After <laughs> he everything. did, he did. But yeah. I mean, obviously, again, like we were just talking about this at work, that it's hard to really make predictions this year because you haven't seen people race. You can't really know. But if you were going to make a prediction, Jan's your bet for winning Coda. Like he doesn't yeah. look like he got slower during COVID. 
He didn't put on the COVID kilos, did he? He, put on, no. he didn't let well, the rest of us all found. How come they didn't get mailed to him? What has he been doing? <laughs> so he's like the favorite at 40 yeah. for a fourth title. I mean, that's pretty crazy. It is like, but it's just, I, I think it's just awesome for the sport for who he is as an athlete. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, we were saying this and you did pull me up on this, which I think is good that it's normally the women that are always talked about with being old and, you know, like these athletes and they're over 40 now and that, and you never get that with the men and they, it just seems to disappear that it doesn't matter what age they are, but you know, you said that I think Brad like did mention that, yeah, he's 39, going to turn 40. He's probably still the best, the one to be in the sport this year. And by the looks of things could be for a few more years as well. He just yeah. has that ability to up his game when he needs to. And as more people come up and challenge him, I think he'll just rise to that and find ways to go to get better. You did mention too that he does get massaged like every day. So he also knows what he needs at 40. <laughs> yeah, I think he's got like, he's got a, you know, his own friend and masseuse and physio who I think, you know, travels to most races as well. And I think does treat him sort of five or six days a week. So, but you know, with his pedigree and the races he's won, and if you can, if you've got that, why not? Hell yeah. Gosh, if I could. If I was as good as he was and could afford it, I'd be doing that. <laughs> I mean, it's not just him, though. We do see kind of across the board. The triathlon's not like a young person's sport anymore. Like, for sure, we see, like, older people doing great. Um, even in the age groups, like, yeah. some of the older age groups are crazy. Uh, I forget what Ironman I did. I was biking next to this woman, and we were in, like, second place. And she was 54. And I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I mean... You definitely see people people doing really well older. And you see a lot of people like Nicola doing really well after they have kids now. Like that's become yeah. super common. People aren't retiring after they have kids. They're, and we're seeing a, a wave right now of women about yeah, coming and back. A, and a part of me, I think, is because it's accepted that you can come back after having kids. You know, mm -hmm. it's that you can't, what you can't see, you can't be. And I think, you know, a few years ago, was that very traditional when you had kids and that was, you know, you started the family and the female was the mother in the family and it was that very traditional. And then as those earlier athletes had children and came back and raced and people started seeing it could be done. And now obviously we've had a lot of people of that age where they want to start a family as females. And then with COVID or whatever has allowed them an opportunity maybe that they didn't see or they'd have had to take more of a break from racing, that they've seen that and they've been able to come back. And yeah, I mean, it's fantastic to see. I, like, I'm going to call it baby doping for sure. <laughs> I actually did a story about that once. I looked into the research and there was like some very weird East German, like back when the East Germans would do anything, there was some weird stuff they were trying. Just so oh, yeah. You know, so. yeah, I've heard some stuff. I didn't know whether it was East Germans or Russians. Sorry, yeah. we probably shouldn't be saying this, but yeah. But this was like back in the... Back a long time ago. Back in the wild. Yeah, yeah. and I, I wouldn't... It, it didn't really pan out. Yeah. Like I wouldn't try it, but... Yeah. But with the I, other thing, I mean, there's a lot of lack of sleep that goes on with having yeah. kids. And I do, I have full respect because I struggle to run my own life on my own and get enough sleep. And I don't. So anyone who is trying to be a full-time professional with kids, I have a lot of time and still kicking ass. Yeah. Hands up to them. Oh yeah. It's been super tough this last year. And then we see a ton of women right now kind of coming back from having kids and it was all over the triathlon social media last week because, uh, the pro, the pro triathletes organization, the PTO released like their rankings for the year. 
and at the top of the American women were three women who are all on maternity all, like, leave. All on maternity leave. And so it kind of all everybody's sort of like, wait, what's what's going on? Which is not to say that they're, you know, Sarah Pian Piano, Chelsea Sodaro, Jocelyn McCauley, like they're all gonna come back and be dominant. Not to say that they're not, yeah. they shouldn't be at the top, like they are at the top of their game. But everybody but it was kind of confusing to everyone. And so then there was all this talk of like, what's going on? How does this work? Yeah. And I feel like we should probably explain. I mean, I spent some time trying to figure it out last week. You spent some time trying to figure it out. Can you explain how the PTO rankings work? Uh, in the honest answer, as a professional athlete who's a member of the PTO, no. Um, which doesn't help our listeners because I don't understand it. But it's it's based on past races on a like a rolling 12-month right. calendar so the- so part of the issue, or not issue, but like part of the reason some people who hadn't raced recently were at the top, not just with the women, but with the men too, yeah. it just wasn't as noticeable with the men or as like visible, is because there were no races last year. So the 12 months that was being looked at was kind of from 2019, 2020. Yes. And then that'll shift now as we have more races in 2021. Yes. And then my I mean, other understanding is it's your best three races that count. Yes. So for some of these people who haven't raced recently, that was going because of COVID, not just because of pregnancy, because of COVID. Yeah. Like that was going all the way back to like mid-2019 for some of their best races. Yeah. So it's been a while. Yeah. And that's it. And so as we go through 2021 and as more races happen and as those athletes come back to racing and race, one of their results that is currently included in the rankings will potentially drop off. Right. And their most recent race will be included for good, bad or indifferent. And then I think we will start to see them move around the rankings a little bit more. Um, Whereas at the moment it feels it it is weird to go, well, hang on a minute. Even in, you know, 2019, 2020, these athletes haven't raced and they're on maternity leave and they seem to be, you know, they're the top, top three ranked Americans for for the, for the Collins cup, which is another, another story. Um, And I think just to emphasize, I don't think, people were having a go at those three athletes individually or anything like that. And I think it's great, this maternity leave policy that the PTO is bringing out for um, for the professionals. Um, but I think there is just confusion still in the between the pros in how the ranking systems are working and evolving. And it feels like they just keep getting changed and at whoever is deciding the rankings at their whim as something comes up. And, you know, it is, it is early days with the, the PTO and it, we had then hit COVID, which doesn't help. So didn't right. have the races and triathlon is a hard sport to try and rank everyone against each other because it's not like swimming or a track meet where it's, you know, a 400 is a 400 meters on the track or, a 200 in the pool is a 200 meters and you can compare times and you most people will go to those same events um it's really hard to do that how you compare course to course and weather conditions and stuff like that and then come up with some kind of ranking system um so i guess like to be clear we should explain so the pto ranking does take your three best races like we just said right now it's reaching all the way back to 2019 because there weren't races but it doesn't do it like, oh, you got first. It does it right. on a yeah. ideal adjusted time. So there's this formula that they developed with Torsten, um, who's been on our podcast before, where they determine for each race, 
that counts because they also have to they announce or say which races are going to count because not like every race counts. Um, and then for each race that counts, there's an ideal time that would be like the perfect time on that course. And then you get a rank, a rate, a rating, like a, a 102 points or yeah. 96 points based on how you do compared to that time, which then is obviously a little weird because it <laughs> you you could be like Daniela at Dubai and be what? 10 minutes ahead and then you get a lower score for your time at Dubai than Teresa Adams gets for the Taronga half in New Zealand, which then, you know, changes the yeah. rankings, Yeah, which is why Teresa is now ranked number one in the world. And Daniela is ranked number two, even though I think most people would be like, eh, Daniela is like the best athlete in the world. Like, yeah. 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 So it's a, so the whole ideal time thing, I think it's also confusing. I saw, a lot of the pro women talking about this on social media, a lot of them are kind of like, well, how do I know what the ideal time is? Yeah. Can I like, does it get published I before? <laughs> and I don't think it does. Again, it, there's a little bit of black magic. It also, there's this element of like when you're racing and this is, so as triathletes, we race for a position most right. of the time because that's where, you know, if you, you're paid on prize money, which is on position. Or, mm -hmm. or that sort of thing you don't race for a time necessarily I and mean, that's because, I, I mean the pros don't i know that like the obviously don't, the, pros don't. PR, yeah, yeah. the pros don't and it's very yeah. weird and i've watched people ask pros like what time how fast and they don't know they literally like don't oh, know yeah, their time yeah, like how fast are you doing <laughs> course? what's your pb on that course i have not a clue because you don't <laughs> you don't race for that you race for that right. position but what the rankings is doing now is almost making pros race for time regardless of position um and it's kind of like saying you know if you as a pro are 10 minutes yeah 10 minutes up the road in the lead and you're on the run but you've got another race the following weekend and maybe further down the line right in theory, you probably want, I don't know, you might want to back off, conserve a bit of energy. You, you're still going to take that win, which is the position. Uh, you can recover quicker for those coming up races. But ultimately, that will now potentially penalize you in the PTO rankings because you are not busting your gut to get as fastest time possible, which will compare against this fastest Time, ideal time ideal time thank you and so is that what we should be pushing for in races or pros or is it just that the pros know that that's how it works and so that's the decision a business decision almost that they make going right they can just choose make back it off now still got the prize money for this race and i can earn in the next race but ultimately the end of the year in the pto rankings i might have dropped and that's less finance at the end of it Right. Or do I, in this race, I will keep busting my gut now to get a really fast time, knowing that I might suffer the consequences in my next race, but ultimately at the end of the year, I'll be higher up in the rankings. Because it does, because the reason it matters is because the rankings determine like your year-end annual bonus from the PTO. Yeah. They determine like, yeah, what you get paid then in the bonuses. Slightly determine if you get invited to the PTO championships. And the, the other career. half of it, well, like yeah. you mentioned, the other half is the Collins Cup, which is like the super invite three, I can have three men, three women from the US, from Australia, and from or from US, Europe, and international. But then the Collins Cup, it's a similar ranking, but it's like a different time frame. Like they yeah. look at only the calendar year. 
And then there's also like discretionary. And that's key for people as well to get in because that's an, not only is that you've got your end of year bonus prize purse on your ranking, it's an additional payment if you make the Collins Cup and quite a substantially financially beneficial one for those who make it. Now, you know, in saying all of this, we've got to say thank you to the PTO because none of us were earning any money kind of two years. You know, if we didn't have the PTO ranking systems or the Collins Cup, this we wouldn't be having any discussions and there wouldn't be all the the backlash around it, but we wouldn't be having the the bonus payouts either. Um, But, you know, now there is a decent amount of money for the sport being talked about that are based on rankings and that's, can affect people's career for the good or bad and where they sit with sponsors and stuff. And so that I think is really hard for people as well. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. It's the same with like the, the maternity leave policy. I think we all, which like the PTO put in this maternity leave policy, you get paid when you go on maternity leave, which is fantastic because people should get paid and your ranking is frozen, which it confused me. Cause I thought if your ranking is frozen, how can anyone ever beat you? <laughs> like yeah. you yeah, can't yeah. be beaten, but it's only frozen in terms of how much you get paid. Then you still have to come back. You have to come back and race a race yeah. in order to be considered for the Collins cup. I didn't yeah. realize that. So you have to, you have to do validate, a race this year. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't like yeah. the word validate, but you have to do a race yeah. to yeah. essentially validate. So it's a, it is interesting. It's all like complicated and, and kind of crazy. And then I'm waiting, seeing as I've been injured for the past few years, I'm waiting for the sick leave policy. Like, <laughs> do I get that now? Do I get the injured athlete policy? Because that would sure be helpful for me. <laughs> You're like, that would put them out of business because everyone's injured all the time. <laughs> it is. It was. I think the other thing that did kind of throw everyone was Daniela not being ranked number one. Because I think everyone... Uh, I mean, granted, for sure, she got beat at Kona last time and and hog beat her. But Daniela should be up there. And uh, I, I I don't think like bar Kona last year, I don't think she's been beaten in a race for the last how many years. Jocelyn beat her at Ironman Texas. No, she didn't. Oh, yeah, she almost. Yeah, you're right. Almost Daniela did. came back. Almost yeah, did. Daniela <laughs> was toying with her, teasing her, going, I'm just going to pretend and then I'm going to put the hammer down for the last 10K. Um <laughs> So like, yeah, and that's what is crazy. Like you you talk about the perception of, of the sport and who are the best athletes and you go, number one, Jan Fredino, like we said, like, and yeah. but he is racing and and crushing it. And so I don't think there's any doubt there. Um, you look at the women's side and yes, Annie Haug is the Ironman world champion, but you would pro- probably still put at the moment Daniela Reef as the best female triathlete in the world over the past few years. And she did race Dubai. So that was relatively mm-hmm. recent. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we have this conversation after St. George. I know I was about to say, and see what, you know, where, where the rankings and the positions sit. So, I mean, Daniela was in the Daniela reef, uh, best female athlete in the world, in our opinions is, uh, <laughs> was in the news a bunch this week. Cause she did do, I mean, Daniela is known for Swiss. What, She's very Swiss. like, She's just focused. She just gets out there, gets the job done, no emotion, right? And uh, and she did a super in-depth, very emotional, wide-ranging interview that was released yeah. last week where she talked about um, like reevaluating what makes her happy, like re-eval- like how she's been struggling with pressure for the last few years. She split with her coach, uh, who Brett Sutton, who's been her coach through all of this. She said she had fallen in love with a woman, uh, but she didn't want to like label it. I mean, she was, it was, and I, 
Yeah. We saw the outpouring of support for that. Just, I mean, it was everywhere. People were super supportive, super happy for her to be like open and honest. And yeah, it was a different kind of, we've never seen that from Daniela before. No. And I think it's been interesting. Like even like her social media over the last couple of years has started to soften a little bit. You get the odd post that like gives you a different insight or a different side to Danielle, but ultimately, and it might be a, um, a Swiss thing is that you just get this very steely, um, or maybe it's the language and stuff like that. But yeah, this very focused, she's the, you know, a consummate professional, but it is hard to kind of break down that barrier with to her and to get those get those interviews and stuff. And maybe it and, and always tends to be like the same responses. So I think that's why that this interview that came out last week was just a fascinating read because you're just like, oh wow, like just a totally different side and probably one that a lot of people could relate to. You know, everyone's probably been reevaluating the past year, like why are they doing what they do in life, whether it's triathlon or whether it's work and family, it doesn't matter what it is, but you know, is that, why are they doing that and what's it worth and, and that sort of thing. So I think people would, could probably just suddenly go, I can relate to who she is and what she is as a person, an athlete now. Uh, She is funny though. I mean, it's always, I always was like, if you pay attention during the press, uh, whatever the press conferences and like interviews with her before she like makes jokes. And it's just that they like, because English is her second language, like you have to kind of pay attention for a second. And you're like, that actually was really funny. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. 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 Very smart, very smart cookie. Yeah. Yeah. And she is, like you said, uh, going to be at St. George this weekend. And St. George is stacked. <laughs> um, people keep asking me uh, who's racing. And I honestly, I mean, the men's field is good. But the women's field, it's Daniela versus Holly Lawrence versus Paula Findley. And then you like also factor in you have uh, Meredith and Lindsay and Heather and like Sarah, oh, holy Sarah, shit. Sarah, Sarah Crowley, Crowley, Emma Talent, Carrie Lester. Oh my God. Herring, like Fenella Language. I mean, but between Daniela, Holly, and Paula, I mean, you have like the top three 70.3 racers in the world. Like that's just yeah. insane. Yeah. yeah. And I think just that, again, if we go back to kind of personalities and what people want in the sport, and they will probably play it down, but I reckon like the Holly Lawrence versus Daniela Reef kind of rivalry yeah and friendly rivalry competitive rivalry whatever you want to put it holly's not managed to well no one's managed to get one over on daniella apart from in kona last year but you know they've been pitted against each other uh, actually she did you know yeah was it 16 she won she 16. beat daniella at 70.3 i was there i was at the after party yeah. Yeah. She was very happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a good reminder because I will correct my uh, wits up preview because I'd forgotten about that, that Daniela was in that race. Um, but I think just that matchup with Holly's history. So Holly's got a great history on St. George, on the course at St. George. So is Paula mm-hmm. Findley, so is Meredith Kessler. Daniela's never raced that, but we've just explained how good she is. Um yeah, I think the women's race is going to be really, really shit hot. Yeah, Holly set a course record two years, like the last time the race was there two years ago. I mean, yeah. if anybody's done that race, you know how hard that run is. Um, it's like all uphill both ways. Holly ran a 121 on that. 
I was like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course, yes, the men, there's Lionel, there's Ben Hoffman, there's Rudy Von Berg, who's defending champ. Um, ben Canute ben Canute is Sam yeah. It's a, I mean, Ben Canute's my interesting one there because he's trying to win it and then fly to Yokohama and get an Olympic spot on the relay team, which is quite the combo. So. You know, if anyone can do it, Ben can probably do it. Like he's, you know, his last couple of half distance races and um, at Miami and stuff has just been super impressive. He's out the water first. Um, right. And so, and yet he's racing kind of also the shorter Super League right type races so and being competitive yeah so that's i didn't realize he was yeah that would be a, an interesting comp and flight logistics and oh my god i have meaning uh, and i've spent a lot of time talking to the olympic athletes the last couple of days and the the logistics going into flying all over the world and one person told me they were flying and they literally landed in germany to transfer and the requirements had changed and they like couldn't get on their flight <laughs> like, oh, god. Yeah. that's how it's going these days so yeah Yep. I must say, um, what I've had about like, I think someone asked me today, they were like, how many COVID tests have you had in the past two weeks? And I was, I started counting and then went, you know what? I, I just, I just lost count. Just a lot, a lot testing daily. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing um but we are going to be at st george triathlete we i will be there my editor will be there uh actually my boss will be there um it's going to be a big race it's going to be 3500 people right now is what they're expecting so and it's it's weird isn't it like it's the north american championships but it feels a little bit like uh was it hamburg last year for itu is kind of this it's the world championships but we don't really feel like we've had a season so right. it's really bizarre and although we've all known that St. George is the North American championships. It still feels weird because there's still been this, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Right. Are we going to have a race? And we still not had that many races. We've not really had a season leading up no. into it. So it's, and for a lot of the women, a few have raced before this year. A few got a race in this year, but a lot of them are actually, this is kind the of first one. The first oh, yeah. race. This is this is my first race in 18 months. And me yeah. and Lindsay Corbin were like chatting yesterday where we're like, oh uh, shit, like I can't even find all my race stuff. It's been a <laughs> no. year and a half. Does my wetsuit still fit? Like, whew. <laughs> have I got, like, have I, do I have nutrition? Or do I have, where's my air? You see, all my race stuff still in, stuck in New Zealand. So I'm like going, oh heck, like race shoes are over there. That's not aero bottle, like drinks bottle, right? Don't have that. Race belt, no, don't have that. Like I'm literally having to buy everything up again. <laughs> I mean, we're really, at least here at work, like we've really been thinking of this. It's kind of like the big start of the U.S. season because yeah. it's going to be a lot of I know we've had races in Florida and Texas, but this is the first one kind of outside of there. And it's going to be really, really big. And I think everyone's going to be there. It's also um, a preview for 70.3 Worlds this fall, um, yeah. which we will be doing a course preview kind of video for people to see what it looks like. So, you know, it's going to be a big deal. And there's 116 pros on the start list. <laughs> Amazing. Like, <laughs> <woo>. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for chatting with us, Sid. And, uh, and we will talk after St. George then. Thanks, Kelly. Don't miss your chance to take on the premier 2021 Verizon New York City Triathlon this summer. This iconic lifetime athletic event is scheduled for July 11th. Selected athletes will swim, bike, and run their way through the concrete jungle. Now is the time to dive in and submit your registration for the chance to take on the Big Apple. But hurry, lottery submissions close tonight, April 28th at midnight. 
visit nyctrynyctri.com. All right, this week we're talking to Melissa Stockwell, who is a three-time world champion in paratri, a Paralympian in swimming, the first woman to lose a limb in active combat. Is that right? That is right, yes. Okay. And so before yeah. all of that, I mean, growing up, you were actually a gymnast. You weren't a triathlete at all, right? What What was your plan? Did you want to be a gymnast? Was that your, like, dream? It, it was. So, I, you know, I... I Yes. So I grew up as a gymnast and I was a avid gymnast. I mean, dreamt of going to the Olympic games as I think most young athletes do. You know, I had posters of the magnificent seven gymnasts in my room. I mean, gymnastics was my entire life. So I knew of the Olympics from a very, very early age. And that was always the goal to go in gymnastics. Obviously that didn't happen, but I, I mean, talk about triathlon. Like I had no clue that triathlon <laughs> existed or what it was. And that came many, many years later, but yes, I was an athlete from, from, from pretty early on my whole life. And you, uh, out of college, you deployed to Iraq. Um, what was that like always your plan to be in the military to, were you going to be a, a lifer? Um, it's hard to say. So the military, so I don't come from a military family. So it's always okay. like, well, then how did I get into the military? Well, right. it kind of goes back to, to the gymnastics time. So like before every gymnastics meet, you know, they, they played the national anthem. We would all look at the American flag and I would always dream of getting, you know, that perfect 10 in the American flag. And <laughs> while that obviously never happened, um, it did kind of turn into this passion for, for our country, like for the flag, for the colors. And as I grew a little bit older, I just kind of learned what they represented and how lucky we were to live in the country that we do. So that kind of turned into wanting to be in, in the military, in the army, to wear the uniform. My parents thought it was a phase I was passing through because <laughs> like, why would why would their youngest daughter ever want to actually be in the army? Um, but I, yeah, I made it a reality when I went out to college at the University of Colorado in Boulder, joined the ROTC program. Then I got um, commissioned as an officer into the army um, the day I graduated in 2002. And September 11th had happened by then. So we pretty much right. knew that we were probably going to be deployed. Um, everyone that I got commissioned with was going to be deployed in the near future. And I mean, you were only in Iraq for a month or so when your your convoy got blown up, right? And you lost a limb yeah. and you ended up back here, which is yeah. pretty fast. Yeah. It, it was. It, you know, actually tomorrow is 17 years, which oh. is crazy. Um yeah, you know, I, I I had that year of my life planned. We, we were supposed to be deployed for a year. Um, and so, you know, if you looked at my calendar, it was 2004 to 2005 in Iraq. So the fact that it happened early, it's almost like I, I mean, I spent nine months at, you know, nine months, nine, 10 months at Walter Reed, like doing rehab and getting my fighting, figuring out how to live life with just one leg. So I am, I'm actually very thankful it happened early on. I mean, you hear these huh. stories about other soldiers who are like boarding the flight to come home after being, you know, gone for a year and something happens and it's an additional year in the hospital. So, um, yeah, it's, it, I, I had a short stint in the military, but it was very eventful. <laughs> very eventful. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I was going to ask how long it took you then, uh, cause you lost your leg. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, you didn't have a lot of other injuries, right? So how long did it take right. you to kind of relearn um, how to do everything, you know, how to to get back up? 
it kind of came in stages. So, you mm. know, I got to Walter Reed, I looked around and military hospitals can be, I mean, they're, they can be devastating. There's so much trauma that goes on there, but there's also so much resilience. So they can be super inspiring as well. And I would look around and see other soldiers who, a lot of them missing so much more than I was. So both of their mm -hmm. legs, they lost their eyesight, they had traumatic brain injuries. And I thought, man, am, am I lucky? Like all I lost was one leg. So that kind of helped me accept the loss of the leg pretty early on, decide what I could you know, move on and do. And obviously the first step to that was being independent. I, I, I hated mm -hmm. being dependent on other people to help bathe me, to push me in the wheelchair. Like I, I just, I wanted to get out of that as quick as I could. So the first step was being independent and that was learning how to walk again. So 52 days after I lost my leg, I stood up with my first prosthetic leg and it's not like I stood up and that was it. And then I was off walking, <laughs> but that, that started the process. So stood up 52 days later, um, it probably took about a month to where I could, you know, parallel bars, crutches, a cane, finally, you know, on my own again. But, um, I mean, that's everyday hours of physical therapy, trying to, you know, find my new normal. Right. And, and then obviously eventually you got into, to para swimming and into para try. Were you a swimmer before? Did you have to, or how did you, cause I can't imagine <laughs> learning to swim and then having to relearn how to swim without a leg. Like it would be right. tricky. <laughs> you know, though, when, like when you think about swimming, so I, I get asked a lot. So do you swim in circles with just one leg? And no, I don't, <laughs> you, you know, you think about swimming and it's, um, <laughs> It's mainly, uh, an up, it's really like an upper body sport. You know, yes, you, you right. have, yes, you kick, but it's not, um, I mean, you can still do so much of it upper body. So I, I, I knew how to swim. I mean, when I was younger, I was on the local swim team and, and whatnot. And, but they had a pool at Walter Reed. And I think, so I'd been an avid gymnast, as we talked about in college, I did athletics. I'd always kind of been an athlete. So I wanted to kind of get mm -hmm. back into that realm and there was a pool at Walter Reed. I got in and it was just this immediate, like the water had a healing effect. You know, I kind of forgot mm. as like, as I, I kind of forgot, like I was missing a leg. And um, I just, I, I love the smell of chlorine, which sounds so random, but even, <laughs> even like today at like, like 2 PM, I'll like, I'll be like, Oh, I got that chlorine perfume because I was in the pool this morning. So it just, everything just kind of like fell into place with swimming. And, um, you know, I learned out about the Paralympics a few months after I got to Walter Reed and everything just kind of came together. I, yeah, I guess it just kind of hmm. looking back, it just kind of worked out, I guess. Right. Right. Cause I was gonna say, how does one even find out about like para swimming and Paralympics? Do you train with like non para athletes or do you train with para, you know, like how do you yeah, get into yeah, yeah. that whole thing yeah the whole the, so i so, so i didn't know about the paralympics which is crazy because it's such a huge part, part of my life right now but so first and and you know paralympics obviously like that's the top of the top right it's like an olympian mm -hmm. train be the best in the world and not everyone's gonna gonna do that but at walter reed you know i i was swimming i wanted to be active again i wanted to be an athlete again and Walter Reed has had all these like events to try to like help us get back to our normal life, whatever that new normal could be. And one of them was this presentation about the U.S. Paralympics. And I went into this room okay. and this guy with this booming voice by the name of John Register sat in the front of the room and he was like, if you train hard enough, if you dedicate yourself to a sport, you can be the best of the best. And it was just kind of like this moment of, oh, my gosh. I want to do that. And I wanted to represent a country. I defended over in Iraq. I could wear a USA uniform. So I left that meeting knowing that like somehow, some way I was going to be a Paralympian. I had already started to swim. So swimming was kind of the natural, you know, progression. 
I was medically retired from the from the army. I joined my first swim team. I was the only one missing a leg. Um, I, you know, went every morning, every afternoon with a bunch of high schoolers and just tried to <laughs> fit in the best that I could, you know, take my leg off at the side of the pool and, and jump in. So, um, yeah, it was it was a learning curve for sure. Yeah, no, that seems crazy. And obviously, there's also the added factor of you were the first woman to lose a limb in combat. Um, and then eventually, you became the first Iraq vet to qualify for the Olympics. So you had like, did you have a lot more attention? Did you feel like people were paying attention to you? Did you like, I feel like that would be stressful. Yeah, you know, I, obviously, no one ever like that wasn't a time I wasn't like, hey, I'm gonna go to Iraq and lose my leg. I, I want to be the first like, I want to be the first, you know, so I don't think you ever strive for a title like that. Um, I just right. happened to be the first. That's not definitely not that was there was nothing I did. I just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time the first time. Right. Um, and then I think qualifying for the Paralympics, the first, I, and again, it's almost like timing. I think my trials were just first. I think there was five Iraq war veterans at the 2008 Paralympic Games. My trials just happened to be first. So that title kind of came with it. So I don't think it was stressful because I wasn't, I wasn't striving for either of those. It just kind of came with the territory, I guess. Right. Did it come with more? Do you feel like people paid attention, though? Do you feel like it came with more opportunities or not? Yeah, yeah, maybe a little bit because and I've maybe in mm -hmm. maybe it meant more to other people than it related to me because it, it just is what <laughs> happened. Um, so maybe it brought a little bit more attention. I think the fact that I was obviously a female and then, you know, the Paralympics, you know, having a Paralympics, you know, so soon after being injured and be and being there. And so, yeah, may, maybe a little bit more attention, um, which honestly was fine I mean, in my mind if if someone could hear a story like mine that maybe is newly injured and that gives them hope and inspiration, I mean, that's kind of a cherry on top of it all. And you got to ultimately, I mean, you went to the Beijing uh, Paralympics and you got to be the flag bearer at the closing yes. ceremonies, right? Yes. How do you get picked for that? Does it, I um, thought it was like a vote among the athletes. It was. So I went to Beijing, I swam, I did horrible. I was, here I was at the biggest athletic <laughs> meet of my life and I got a participation medal, which I wanted to like chuck out the window at the time. Wait, do they really, do they really give participation oh, medals? Oh yeah, I have it somewhere. Um, I, yes, <laughs> they do. It's like a legit medal. Um, but I wanted huh. so much more more than that. No one goes to the Paralympics and Olympic Games wanting to, um, you know, get a participation medal, right? You want to be on the podium and get that gold, silver, or bronze. So, so I didn't do well athletically. The end of the meet, the end of the Paralympic Games comes to a close. And at the closing ceremony, someone is nominated to carry like the American flag in and represent the entire U.S. delegation, typically reserved for someone who has much more than a participation medal. So it's a vote. All the team captain team captains get together and they vote. And I knew that my that the swim team had nominated me as the swim team, you know, person. But there was all there's like you know dozens of other athletic teams out there, and they all nominating their person. So I was shocked when I was chosen, and it was. You know, looking back, I think that's what was supposed to happen at the 2008 games. And it helped me realize that, you know, we all want the medals. You want the gold, silver, and bronze. You want to be the best, but it's about the journey of getting there as well. And I think my teammates, my team USA teammates realized that there was this journey and there was overcoming obstacles that you never expect, persevering through, having the heart to get through, ending up at the Paralympic games, you know, four years after losing a leg. And they helped me realize that, the journey is sometimes, you know, more important than, than the medals. I would imagine that uh, the Paralympics are kind of unique in that everyone has 
like a, a, a thing they've had, like everyone has a story, right? Like everyone yeah. has something they overcame or, and, and I feel like that would be a very intense experience. It is, but it's, it's, I think all, anyone that you made at the Paralympic games, we've all accepted whatever, whatever disability mm-hmm. we have, you know, amputation, lost eyesight in a wheelchair. Like we've all accepted it because we've, and, and kind of moved on to be the best that we can be. So we're not there, you know, like, do I want to know everyone else's stories? Absolutely. And a lot of them I do know, and they, they, they do inspire me, but we, we're there to showcase our athletic ability. Like we don't focus on, right. we don't focus on the disabilities when we're there. We focus on who's the best athlete and who's trained the hardest and who can kind of step up and, and, you know, be on that podium. So after, uh, like you said, you, uh, well, your words, I still think it's impressive you went, but you said you didn't do good. And so that you wanted to, uh, you obviously still wanted to medal. And so you ended up moving over to triathlon. How, why did you think you'd be better at triathlon? And how did you kind of like make that switch? Well, I definitely didn't think I'd be better. So triathletes, I used to think were crazy, okay. right? I think any triathlete, like I, you're like, oh, I do triathlon. And people are like, oh, well, you're crazy. So um, after Beijing in 2008, <laughs> so there's a there's an organization called the Challenged Athletes Foundation. They're based out of San Diego. Yeah. I'm sure many are familiar with it. They have a group called Operation Rebound, which is a whole bunch of, which is basically a subgroup of CAF that's um, all wounded veterans. And after the Beijing hmm. Paralympics in 2009, they do this annual like triathlon in, in October of a year. And, you know, this the head of Operation Rebound called me and was like, hey, why don't you come give this triathlon a try? And I'm like, okay, what's a triathlon? Swim, bike, and run? Uh, all right, I'll give it a try. Always kind of up for a challenge. Went out to San Diego. I'm surrounded by hundreds of other athletes with disabilities. We're all doing this triathlon. I swim, I bike, I run. I'm on the same course as athletes with disabilities, able-bodied athletes. I crossed the same finish line. I mean, I was hooked from the start. I I loved it. Like I fell (laughs) in love with the sport. I loved that it wasn't just swimming in a pool. I was swimming in the ocean. I was biking. I was running. I Like the challenge of the different prosthetic legs I had to wear. I mean, everything just... I, I loved it. I mean, I, I became passionate about it, like from that first race and knew that that was going to be my, what I pursued from there. You just mentioned you had different legs. I would imagine that the gear, like there's a lot of gear involved in paratri, right? Is that hard yes. to learn? Do you have to like have someone help you figure it out along the way? Um, yes and no. I think so as an amputee, I know that I need a running specific leg. I need to figure out how I'm going to bike when I get out of the water and go to T1. How am I going to do that? Am I going to walk? Am I going to put my running leg on? Am I going to use crutches? So there's a lot of like different things to figure out. Um, but then you have someone who it's a spinal cord injury and let's say they have, they're in a wheelchair and they do a triathlon and they have, you know, a hand cycle, so a bike that they power with their arms. They have a racing wheelchair, so basically this, like, fancy wheelchair that, that they use on the run. So talk about equipment. I mean, <laughs> you know, we complain about going to the airport with a bike. Well, they have essentially two bikes and their wheelchair. I mean, it's a very equipment-intensive sport. Yeah, no, I imagine. So you started that, you said, uh, at the challenge, at the big race. Challenge athletes do a big race in San Diego every year. Yeah. 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 They still do it yeah. every year. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's awesome. And then, uh, I mean, it was a while before you actually made it to Paralympics and triathlon. Did it yep. take you a while to, like, feel like you progressed? Or, or you know, when did so, you start to feel like you were getting good? Um. So triathlon wasn't a Paralympic right. sport until 2016. So that's when it debuted as a sport. So when I got started in 2009, the highest level we could go was world championships. So I, I fell in love with the sport. I loved it. I think one of my next one or two races was 
on the Chicago triathlon and mm -hmm. I went and that I wanted to qualify for world championships for in 2010. It was, I think in 2010 was my first world championships. So I qualified in Chicago and realized pretty quickly that I was actually kind of decent at <laughs> the sport of triathlon. I, you know, never thought I'd be doing it. And here I was, I mean, decent enough to make the paratriathlon national team, um, my, my first year, uh, like doing it. So that got me to various world championships, 2010, 11, 12, mm -hmm. 2013, it was announced that it was going to become a Paralympic sport. So that right. was obviously the new goal was to make it to, um, Rio in 2016. And like every, like, but I mean, life continues to happen, right? It's not just <laughs> sports, sports, sports. So I did, I got divorced. I ended up getting remarried. I had um, my son Dallas before, before Rio. So all these things are happening, but that goal is um, Rio in 2016 for triathlon. What was the, uh, when you say it turned out you were pretty good, what was the hardest thing to, to learn? You know, for me, it was the bike. And that's something that's still, I think in triathlon, everyone has their, I, I could ride a bike. I mean, sure, right. give me a bike and I'll ride it. But riding it fast and hard is totally different. So, you know, I think in triathlon, everyone has their thing that they're good at and the thing that they're, you know, the least good at. And swimming obviously came natural because of, you know, my past in swimming. Running, um, I come on pretty quickly. It's definitely a very different running gait as you would have mm -hmm. with two legs. But, you know, that's kind of like, the more you do something, the better you get. It was the bike. Just I could ride a bike, but just trying to get fast at the bike is something still I still have to work on a lot um, these days, too. Oh, really? How much how much mm -hmm. do you train? Because uh, like you said, there is life. You still you actually like yeah. do other things, too. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, like like right now, how much do I train? Yeah. So we're gearing up. So obviously I'm, I'm training for Tokyo 2021 or 20, we are in 2021, whatever, yeah. Tokyo, whatever it is. Um, so I, I live in Colorado Springs. I train at the Olympic Training Center. I have teammates. Um, so we, we're considered the, the resident team. And we train probably between, um, I think last week was like 17 and a half hours or so. So it's for a sprint distance race. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say between 15 and 20 hours. And that's mm -hmm active training time. And then it's, you know, I'm, I'm 41 years old. So <laughs> trying to keep my body, um, you know, up to par. So sports medicine and that kind of thing, just trying to make sure that injuries go and they don't, you know, so I can kind of be prepared for the next day. Yeah. I mean, you, like you said, you're 41, you have two kids now. I do. I know you thought about being retired and then they pushed Tokyo another year. Mm -hmm. Was it hard to, to stay in it for a whole other year? <sighs> for a fleeting moment. So, you know, I, the, the postponement was the right thing to do. I think any athlete would agree safety first, you, like, you know, never want to jeopardize that, but I'm 41. I, I was supposed to be 40. I have two young kids. My husband and I have our, our own prosthetic company here in the Springs. There was like a, dif there was a definitive timeline, August of 2020. I'm done. I can focus more on the business. I'm not traveling for racing and training. I'm here with the kids. And then it gets postponed. And for like, for like 60 seconds, I was like, what? Like another year? It seems like an it seems like an eternity, right? Like for someone who's younger, no kids, no family, all like, like it's like a like no big deal. But it, it was a big deal. So it was a fleeting moment of can I still do this? Will my body let me do this? Do I want to still do it? And then it was followed up by, yes, you want to see that dream, you know, through to completion for myself and my kids. And not only that, but it kind of like my kids are young; they're three and six. So. 
they kind of, and they, they know that mommy swim, swims bikes and runs all the time, but my son kind of gets why, but it was kind of like another year for him to realize why I do it. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to find the, the positivity behind it. And I mean, here we are, gosh, you know, five, four, April, May, June, July, four months out. I mean, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Here. It's here. See, the year went by like that. I know. <laughs> I know. What do you, I mean, what do you tell your kids when they're like, why do you have to swim, bike, run all the time? It's funny. They never ask why they just, they, they just, they're like, Oh, you put on, I put on my running leg and they know going on a run. My, my daughter's always like, go fast, mommy, go fast. And I tell them, like I tell my son who's six, who is kind of starting to get it, that I do it because I want to be the best in the world. I want to train mm -hmm. and the, and you know, it, it helped when he was learning to ride his bike. I mean, he would get frustrated because he would get up and he couldn't do it. And I was like, well, that's mommy. That's why I, you know, that's why I, swim, bike, and run all the time so I can get better at it, so I can try to be the best that I can be. And it kind of helps relate it. But at the same time, I mean, I'm their mom, so it like kind of resonates, kind of doesn't. I don't even know. I think we'll find out in the future if anything I say ever says him. But I think um, but I think he is getting it. Like I think like he they go to a race or on the sidelines, they, you know, they scream, go mommy, go, and they want to see me on the they want to see me win. They want to they want me to come give them their medal. And I can I can tell that they're proud. Yeah. So uh you said you wanted to see the dream through, but at, at Rio, yeah, that's right. Rio was the last one. I was trying to remember how many yeah. Olympics it's been. You got a bronze medal. It was the first time a paratri had been in the Olympics. So what's what's left? Like what's the what's the dream <laughs> to still? Do it, to do it again. So <laughs> Rio, Rio was, I mean, probably the highlight, aside from ha having my children, I mean, it, it was the highlight of, of my life. I mean, it was September mm -hmm. 11th, our race was on September 11th. I was a long shot to make the team. I made the team. I got a bronze medal. It was a USA sweep, gold, silver, and bronze of Team USA, three American flags. I mean, like it doesn't get any better. Like I, the emotions are there like it was yesterday. Like I still have goosebumps. Um, so, and honestly, after Rio, I was like, oh, I think I'm done. Um, but here I am, like four months out from hopefully another games. So what's left? I mean, I got bronze. Let's just work our way up the podium. Let's see what, <laughs> let's see what we can do. And honestly, and Mike- my kids are older, so I want them to see it. Well, they'll have to uh, see it on TV now, but yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't like, they're not going to be allowed to go, right? I mean, not with no. how everything works. Uh, yeah. That was devastating news, but no, they won't be able to. Yeah. So you guys are about to start racing again. Yoka, like Yokohama mm -hmm. is the first race for you guys, mm -hmm. I think. That's next month. And yep. we talked to Aaron Shady's last week about all the different qualifications and the categories. And so for you, how does what is the category for you? Is it partial? Like, is it just a uh, lower limb partially? Yeah, it's so I'm in what's called the severe leg impairment category. So I'm missing okay. one leg above the knee. I would so basically the majority of my competitors have the same disability I do, but then you have some competitors who have impairments on both sides. Um, so they are considered severe leg impairment. Um, you have someone who may be an amputee below the knee where I'm above the knee, but then also have an impairment on the other side. So, you know, like a lot of times you'll look at, you know, you'll watch a race and you'll be like, how are they competing against each other? But there's this whole medical classification that takes place and they, they make it as fair as they can. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we're just out there doing the best we can do and hoping that we're the, we're better than everyone else that's in our classification. So severe leg impairment, it's PTS2. They're like based on numbers, but that's what I am. <laughs> and uh, I would imagine there's a few dozen people in that category in the world that are as, right? Like, do you all know each other? Yeah, I would think so. Especially, I, I would say the ones that are at the races all the time, like top 10 in the world. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah. And so what do you need to do to qualify? Is it all ranking from here? Yes and no. It's such a confusing process. I feel like I have to like, <laughs> it's, it's confusing to me. Trying to explain it to someone else is, is hard, but basically there will be a US, you have to earn country slots, which means you have to be right. in the top eight of the world. In my classification, there are three Americans, the three that won gold, silver, and bronze in Rio. We're all still in it. We are all ranked within the top eight, which means that we have earned two country slots. So then, so then, so we've earned our slots. So then, then it's like, okay, well, who gets those slots? Well, there's going to be a U.S. qualifying race in the end of June. If you, because we have our country slots, what whoever wins that race gets an automatic slot. We earn our slot there. If second or third, then you kind of battle it out. And that's where right. it comes down to a lot of world rankings. A lot of discretion is being used this year, just be based on races being canceled and you know right. everything that came with COVID. So going to Yokohama in middle of May, there'll be another race over in Europe in June. Those races are done on, like, let's say I get second at the U.S. qualifier. Well, I need to prove to the discretionary committee that I can do well with, on the international level as well. So it's kind of it's kind of everything combined. Points. The qualifying race, discretion. I mean, I that yeah, I don't even know. I don't know. <laughs> All I know is that every race I do this year, I need to do well. That's what I know. Right, right. That right. Uh, you just have to do very well at every race. Yes, yes. Okay. And uh, and like you said, for COVID, I mean, you were a little not sure at first, but then since then. Throughout COVID, I mean, you pretty much just trained through it, right? Did you adjust? How did you guys deal with COVID? I know you did um, some group training outside, but you weren't able to get into the Olympic Training Center for a little while. Yeah. So it's sort of hit or miss. Yeah. You know, I think for a few months, probably like three months in there, we were just all on our own. Luckily, the weather was good, so I could bike and run outside. No one had access to a pool. So I was, you know, we were all doing mm -hmm. swim cords and stuff in our for me and like in my basement. Um, honestly, it was, I, I've spent more time with my family than I, you know, ever have, I think, because typically I'm gone for training camps or racing and it's done, it's done me really well. This whole, I feel like before hmm. I was always, you know, obviously family is always there, but I'm so focused on the training and the whole balance of training and family life. I mean, I'm, it's like, I'm definitely faster now than I was last year. I'm, I'm faster now than I've ever been. Oh. So somehow really? this last year, and maybe it's cause I've, haven't had to travel. I've just had these solid training blocks, but I truly think it's the whole family life training balance that has really put me in the mindset of just, if I have to do a workout, if it's, is it going to be really hard? Okay, well, let's just go do it. I mean, that's why am I sitting here talking about it? Like, let's go do it. And if it, if it doesn't go my way, well, I come home and I, you know, go on a walk with my kids or it just, I don't know, the balance has just been key to me this year. And it's, it's, it's showing, it's showing itself in, in my racing. Huh. Uh, have you been able to race yet? Yeah, we've had. Um, oh, okay. Yes. So in, we had a race in Sarasota, Florida, um, gosh, right. about three weeks ago now. Um, typically, that's our U.S. qualifier. But because of COVID, other countries couldn't come. So it had to be pushed back. Um, but it was it was great. Our entire resident team that we've been training with all winter and through COVID, everyone did so well. We were all on such a high. Like all the work we were putting in has paid off. And it's um, it was great. And you mentioned that this was going to be the year that you focused on your business. You and your husband have a prosthetics business. Mm -hmm. One, I like, did you start a prosthetics business because you had an interest in it? Or like, how did that come about? You know, where, where did your background come from? How, how did it happen? Yeah. 
so both, both both my husband and I went back to school for prosthetics. So I did, we didn't know okay. each other until we were, you know, doing our residency. But basically, when I got fit for my first prosthetic leg, I had no idea, you know, what was I going to do with my life? I knew I wanted, I was going to get out of the military. What was I going to do? Mm-hmm. And the, the guy that fit me for, that handed me my first leg, I mean, he got to watch me stand up and take my first steps. And like, he was, because of him, I was able to like, literally get back up on my feet. So just thinking about how rewarding that that was for somebody to to see. So I decided to go back to school for prosthetics. My husband, um, his his family has a background in you know medical durable equipment. So and anyways, he went to school for prosthetics. After after school, then you have a year long residency, which you do before you take the board exams. We met mm. during that residency. Um, ended up obviously married with with two kids now, and then. <laughs> <laughs> to make a long story short. Right. Um, and then moving out to Colorado, we were, we lived in Chicago, but moving out here so I could train at the Olympic Training Center. My husband, Brian, he's always wanted to kind of have his own business. So moved out here and it was kind of like, why not give it a shot? I mean, why not open our own place? There are a number of other prosthetic facilities in Colorado, but we wanted to kind of fill the void of, you know, fitting the high, um, high-end athlete. So right. we, we opened a business, didn't realize it was going to be six weeks before the pandemic hit. Um, but we've, we've been open for a little over a year now. Um, it's, 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 we, we, we made it through and I feel like we're only, you know, getting, getting more and more patients and we fit everyone. We fit a number of athletes from the Olympic training center. Um, so high end athletes, but we've, we've also, you know, fit just other adults and youth and we do orthotics and prosthetics and it's just, I don't know. It's been pretty great to just kind of give back to the community in that way. Do you ever feel like you use your own experience then with, you know, building prosthetics, fitting prosthetics? Uh, yeah. 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 And so just if, a good example is just this morning, um, I actually jumped on the call right from coming back from the office. There was a woman who she, they're kind of like limb salvage. They're kind of trying to like save part of her leg. And she is, she has a choice to have it amputated. Mm. And she's, I mean, I, you can imagine, like, I didn't have a choice. If I had a choice, it'd be, it's, a, it's a, I mean, that's a hard choice to make. Yes. Amputate my leg. So just kind of talking through with her, you know, my, my experiences, the pros and the cons being at the office, Brian going into the back, pulling out, you know, what exactly we could make her like, so that experience it's almost like I have that. I know what they're going through. I kind of being fit with a leg. If something hurts, maybe it doesn't help me fix it any better, but I can empathize with them on, Oh, I, I know that I've had that feeling before and let's try to fix it. So it doesn't help me make the legs any better. Um, right. or, or maybe it does because I can kind of know from experience kind of what it feels like, but just that empathy, I think, or just, you know, having connecting with somebody more because I've actually like gone through it. Have they gotten better in the, it's been what, 16 years for you now? 17 tomorrow. Yeah. Crazy. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's what you said. You said that. Has it gotten better? Have they gotten better? Like more comfortable, faster? Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of it is, it's, it's like, I think those on the outside of the prosthetics field, you see these like really big advancements and everyone gets really excited about them. So for example, like if you looked at, you know, watch 60 minutes or looked in Newsweek, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, we're going to implant electrodes in your brain and you can you know, walk and use your arm by just thinking about it, which sounds great, but I think that's really far down the line. What's the most exciting are like the little things, little things make the biggest difference. So I have a prosthetic leg right now that it was three years ago. It wasn't waterproof. Well, now it is. So I can Hmm. go swimming with my kids. I can shower with it if I wanted to. I don't have to worry about it getting wet. 
um, it has a battery in it that I actually charge it like you would charge a computer or, or, or like a cell phone. It used to only last 24 hours. Well, now it lasts three whole days. So if I want to go camping, I don't have to worry about plugging my light in. So it's like the little things that make a really big difference in like in just in um, in just a way of life, really, of, of doing what I want to do. Yeah, it's interesting. Huh. Do you feel like in all obviously also in this time, I f- do you think Paralympians have gotten more attention, more publicity? Do you think, do people pay attention to the Paralympics? Cause yeah. it is to a degree for a while there for a long time, it was kind of like the smaller mm-hmm. stepchild of the Olympics. Do you think that people really like respect it now? I do. And I think it's only growing in momentum. You know, I think back to 2008 mm-hmm. to when I was in, you know, my very first Paralympics, I'm a swimmer and I wasn't really paying attention so much then on like the public perception, but from 2008 to 2020, and it's in part because of, I think, so Oscar Pistorius, which I'm sure many mm-hmm. people know, he put kind of Paralympics on the, uh, on the map a little bit, on the radar of people. But then you had a lot of it is, a lot of it's media, honestly. Like you have these companies. So I'm part of Team Toyota, which is, which is awesome. I'm super, you know, honored to be a part of the team. But you have this huge company like Toyota. And they sponsor athletes going to the games. And instead of just focusing on Olympic athletes, they focus on Paralympic athletes as well. And they put them in mm-hmm. mainstream commercials on TV. They're in, you know, magazines. And it, like, so it, it's almost becoming like second hand to the Olympics. Like, oh, it's not just the Olympics. It's the Olympics and the Paralympics. And the more that these big companies like pay attention, help get the word out there, the more that the perception is going to change that we are athletes that we work just as hard as the Olympic athletes and we get out there and we want to be the best in the world also. Yeah. One of the things when I was talking to Aaron was he was also saying when he started Paratri, I mean, they were making up the rules as they went. And like now it's a much more like organized thing. Has Paratri also grown in that time? I think so. And I think, I do think there, I, I probably with every, you know, Paralympic sport, the classification is what kind of gets the most, a lot of attention because Right. I mean, for example, in swimming, you have eight lanes and you look up at a finals event and there's seven missing a leg and the eighth person isn't. And you're like, well, how are they up there? And yes, they they may have their reasons. They've been through, you know, this medical classifications to get there. But I do think it, it, that kind of has, um, has still has some work to be done. But yes, the rules have gotten more specific on just peril, just in triathlons since 2016 to now. And I think it's, it's growing, which is super exciting. And the more that it grows, the more that the rules and everything that goes along with it has to adjust and to change just to accommodate. And you also started an organization called Dare to Try, right? Or mm-hmm. I mean, I don't like you helped found it. And uh, and that helps bring triathlon to like other para athletes, para kids, right? Yep. Yep. So Dare to Try, it's based out of Chicago. Uh, two friends and I co-founded it in 2011. The goal was to get other athletes with physical disabilities into the sport of mm-hmm. triathlon. We were all triathletes. I was missing my leg. We knew how like the importance of sports in anyone's life, but especially somebody with a disability. So the goal, we had a modest goal the first year to get like five triath- five new athletes to the starting line that had a disability. And I think that first year we had 20 athletes in the past, you know, huh. 10 years, we've served over 300 athletes. And you know, it's, you ask someone to do a triathlon and when they have their entire body, they're like, oh no, I can never do that. And then you take someone in a wheelchair or who's blind and you're like, Hey, you're going to do a triathlon. And they're like, uh, like how am I going to do that? So we provide the expensive adaptive equipment. We provide training, we provide, you know, financial assistance to get to the race. And 
let me tell you that seeing an eight-year-old who's missing their leg like I am get to that starting line, swim, bike, and run, finish, and get that medal that they are a triathlete, I mean, the self-confidence, the self-worth, they are suddenly the school hero because they were a triathlete. I mean, it is so empowering. It's, it's, I mean, it's amazing. It's Dare to Try is, I mean, it's changed my life and we've, we've changed countless lives as well. What is the biggest obstacle for, you know, getting those kids into it? Um, is it the equipment? It's the equipment. Yeah. The equipment, mm. it's expensive. And, you know, you'd have someone who's in a wheelchair. You can't just go into a, a local bike store and get a bike. You have to have, get right. a, a specific bike um, that's not off the shelf. So it's expensive. It's not just the equipment, but getting to the races. If you're visually impaired, you have a guide that you have to bring with you. So you're not just paying for one airfare, you're paying for two people to fly there. So I would say um, equipment and just actually like getting to the race itself. Right, right. Making it all work. Okay. All right. Uh, here's my question for you out of all that you said that besides having your kids, obviously, that the medal in Rio is the best thing. What is the coolest person that you've got to because i saw your pictures you've met like lots of cool people who's the coolest uh, person you got to meet out of all of this um so so i i i have been fortunate fortunate to meet a lot of people and like i've met many, multiple <laughs> presidents and you know danced with them wrote ridden bikes with them but i think because i was such a gymnast growing up and i was you know, I was, my heroes were the Magnificent Seven. So you have Shannon Miller, Carrie Strug, Kim Zemeskel. Mm -hmm. And meeting any of them, I got to meet Shannon Miller. And it was just this like moment of like my jaw dropped <laughs> and like, you are my hero and you're standing in front of me. So I think, I think that just cause they were my, you know, heroes and kind of idols growing up. But of course, right. I mean, I have a, a, a I, I'm very fond of President George W. Bush. I mean, whatever anyone thinks politically, he is a great man. He stands by his decisions. You know, he those whose lives he affects, he still keeps in touch with today. And it's just, um, it's very, it's very apparent that he's still very passionate about veterans and and making sure that we are um, living the best life that we can. So he, you know, I mountain biked with him. I shared a dance with him. I said the Pledge of Allegiance <laughs> at the library opening. He held my son at three days old. So I, I just feel like there's a very, you know, a connection there. And I just, I'm, I'm, yeah, he's, um, he's a good man. And I'm very, I'm very proud that our past reconnected. Him. Yeah. It's a, uh, you've certainly gotten to, uh, it sounds weird, right? But you certainly got to do a lot of very cool things, yeah. live a very cool life. So yeah. definitely, I know it's crazy, <laughs> right? We, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. We usually finish with a, would you rather? So here's my, would you rather for you? And I think I'm going to know the answer, but since you've done both in the Olympics, would you rather swim or triathlon? Triathlon. Triathlon. Yes. Hands down. Hands down. Yep. <laughs> yep. Just, I mean, instead of being in a, yeah, I mean, you get to see the world. Like, I got to bike and run up and down the streets of Copacabana Beach in Rio. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> like we said, you got to do cool got things. To, I so. got to do cool things. Yes, I'm. I, I, I'm. I live a very full life, and I'm, I'm proud of it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, and good luck with all of the Tokyo qualifications. Thanks to Melissa and Sid for the chat, and thanks to all of you. Hopefully you're as excited to get back to racing as we are. Keep training and keep listening.